Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 6. And uh, again, this evening we're coming back to looking at the Lord's Prayer. And we'll be looking uh, this evening at the third petition, Your Will Be Done, as it's recorded in verse 10. But we'll read uh, the section uh, as a whole. And I meant to say something before, and I, I neglected to do so, but someone brought it to my attention that uh, as we're turning to read this portion uh, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, our English Standard Version, uh, our church uh, Bible, uh, doesn't have the words of the traditional doxology uh, to Matthew's uh, version of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, some of the older translations, the King James, uh, the New King James, even the modern English version, would contain uh, the ending, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. But there are many modern versions uh, that don't, including uh, the English Standard Version, uh, which raises a question, uh, why do some Bibles not include the word? Why is it absent from some Bibles? And why is it present in other uh, English Bibles? And really the reason is, is uh, as how people account for um, uh, the texts that have been preserved down through the centuries. It really uh, opens up a whole field of discussion around what we call textual criticism. Not having a critical spirit, not being critical uh, about the Bible, but of trying to rightly understand how to uh, uh, account for the manuscripts that have been preserved down through the centuries. And the reason why some English Bibles don't contain the ending is because there are uh, some very early manuscript, very uh, not um, complete manuscripts that don't include it. And so those manuscripts are uh, very important for people uh, because they are not only early, but they are complete manuscripts uh, that don't contain those words. On top of that, uh, the reason is, is because there are many early church fathers, uh, people like Hilary, uh, Origen, Cyprian, uh, Augustine, uh, Gregory, uh, who don't account for or don't seem to give support to the ending of the Lord's Prayer in their commentaries, in their writings. So that is why some versions don't include the traditional uh, ending, the doxology. On the other hand, uh, why do some uh, Bibles retain those words? And the reason is, is because 98% of the manuscripts that we have include those words. That uh, somewhere around 1,500 uh, uh, citations can be given that gives support uh, to including the traditional ending. Not only that, but you have uh, Eastern Church Fathers such as John Chrysostom, uh, sometimes called the golden mouth preacher of the Eastern Church in the early church centuries. He gave commentary on the traditional ending of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but more than that, again, is, is that you have uh, an early church manual uh, that was called the didache. Didache is simply the Greek word for teaching. And this early church manual, telling people how to live the Christian life, uh, talks about the Lord's Prayer. That, that didache, that manual, uh, goes back all the way to about 100 AD. 
Uh, and so it's a very early account of how Christians are to live their lives. And the Lord's Prayer, down through our catechisms, down to the early church, has always been pivotal for how to live the Christian life. And the Didache references it, and the Didache includes the ending. So when we're starting to look at this question, we're saying it's not as though some uh, are uh, trying to disparage the Bible, but there are some that look at it and begin with what they see, and they see the omission in some manuscripts, and they decide that to uh, give caution before including it. Whereas others see the great preservation of manuscripts that account for the inclusion of it. And in addition to that, uh, it's not only contained in the Greek manuscripts, it's also included in something known as the Peshitta, uh, that is the Syriac manuscripts. The Bible was translated very early uh, from Greek into other languages. And so you have manuscripts that have been preserved uh, from Greek to Syriac, to Gothic, uh, to Arabic, uh, and they all include uh, the ending of the Lord's Prayer. So we have all of this uh, information to deal with, but we can simply step back and ask the question, is it true? And the answer to that is, undoubtedly, it is true. It is the theology of the Lord's Prayer itself. Uh, when Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is saying that it is powerful. He is saying it is glorious. He is saying that it is something that is forever. But more than that, it's something that David himself said about God's kingdom. In First Chronicles 29, we see the same phraseology being used in that portion of uh, the scriptures. Is it historical? Yes. It has always been part of the testimony of the church dating back all the way to about 100, we can guarantee. Uh, but more than that, it is part of the manuscript tradition. Uh, and then finally, we can ask, is it fitting? And it is fitting, uh, because it is teaching us about the Lord's uh, kingdom. Uh, to him be the glory forever and ever. So while people may have different uh, interpretations of it, there's no reason to question or to be uncomfortable with the doxology. It is proper, it is part of the church's testimony, it is historical, and it is uh, part of scripture. And so we can uh, recognize that there are discrepancies because in the Eastern church, it's present, and in parts of the African church, uh, in time, like places like Egypt, um, places where Cyprian was, uh, it wasn't accounted for. Uh, but that's part of history. Uh, there are real-life events that make the transmission of the scriptures a challenge, uh, but that doesn't under, undercut our confidence in God's word. So we'll be reading the Lord's Prayer this evening, and we'll be uh, reading the doxology as well. Matthew chapter 6, and beginning our reading at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. 
for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As mentioned, uh, we are uh, looking at this prayer of Jesus that Jesus taught to his disciples. And we are really looking at the topic of prayer uh, through the teaching of Jesus in these verses. But as we come uh, back to looking at the Lord's Prayer this evening, uh, we want to direct our attention to this third petition, Your Will Be Done. And we want to uh, uh, think about it in uh, two thoughts. We want to think about whose will and how is that will uh, to be done. And we want to see that because God's will is all wise, that we should gladly and willingly submit to it. So this evening we are looking at uh, this in, uh, in two thoughts. First, we want to think about uh, your uh, will be done. God has created us. God has created us with this amazing capacity to make choices. We choose what to pursue. We choose what to avoid. We make choices as agents with a freedom uh, that God has given to us. And yet what the Bible teaches us as well that sin has affected every aspect of our being. That even our choices, our will, uh, can and has been affected by sin. And so this prayer is really about whose will is to govern our life. By, by nature, it can seem very natural to us to think that the most natural, to do, natural thing to do will be to do what seems right to us, to live according to our own will. But just because it feels natural, just because it feels... Uh, authentic, doesn't make it right or true. Uh, to live ultimately according to our own will really is to make ourselves supreme. It is to make ourselves the highest standard by which to judge right and wrong or good and evil. But more than this, when we say, when we live our lives with the mindset and the attitude, my will be done, we are effectively disregarding God's will as either irrelevant or we're treating it as something suspicious and to be opposed. And so it's not a neutral thing to simply assert, I just want to live my life my way. I just want to be my own person. I want to do what I want to do. Because we are, we are suppressing, we are rejecting, opposing the notion of God's will in the equation. We're not wanting to shed light on what has God said about how we are to live. We are not wanting to acknowledge God's sovereignty over all things. And that's really how sin entered the world. Adam and Eve didn't want to do the will of God. They asserted their own will over God and as a result lived in rebellion to him. But here, Jesus is teaching his followers that when they pray, they are to pray that God's will would be done. 
And we can think about the will of God in, in a couple of ways. There's only one will to God. But we can still think about it. We can still uh, come to uh, grasp the will of God in different senses. There is a will to God that we can talk of as the will of God's purpose. That whatever God decrees according to his sovereign will is the purpose of God. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 135, Whatsoever the Lord has pleased, that did he in heaven, in earth, in the sea, and in all the deep places. Whatever God pleases, he does. Whatever God wills, he does. And so God's will is sovereign. Uh, it is controlling all things. Nothing inhibits God's will. God is a God who is sovereignly controlling all things that come to pass. We might call that the secret will of God. Because it's what is governing all things from behind the scenes. But we don't see the will of God in that sense. Uh, in Deuteronomy, it talks about how the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us <coughs> and to our children. And so there's a sense in understanding that God is sovereign over all things that happen, that everything that happens is ultimately under the will of God. But that isn't necessarily something that we can always, we can't understand until it is unfolding before us. But when we understand that God is in control, it's that understanding that allows someone like Job in the midst of his trials and in the midst of his tragedies to say the Lord has given the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is able to conclude and to hold on to the, the, the belief, the conviction, that God is in control and that this too is under God's sovereign will. So when we talk about the will of God, we can be talking about the purposes of God as they're unfolding in time. That, that refers to anything that happens. But God's unfolding will ultimately is not only sovereign, it's gracious. Because as we come especially to the New Testament, it teaches us what the will of God is in Christ. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul made that clear. He said, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, to the praise of his own glory. How does God work all things? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so scripture talks about the will of God as the outworking of his purposes, which are sovereign and gracious. Those things that God has decreed from eternity past his control over all things that happen, and ultimately are gracious in light of Christ. But we can also think about the will of God in another sense, uh, the will uh, of God in terms of his precepts or of his commands, his revealed will. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church and he told them, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Peter can write to the church in Asia Minor and he can tell them, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. God's will for the church 
God's will for the people of God is, is that they would be like him. That they would reflect his character. That they would be holy as he is holy. That they would be consecrated to his purpose as he has created them to be servants of his glory. That's what we were created for. And so the scriptures teach us God's commands. How we are to please God. What is God like? What does God want us to live like? And when we hear that, how is it that God calls us to live? That's what the psalmist was celebrating there in the Psalms. Your word is a lamp to my feet. The psalmist was saying your laws are are more desirable than honey. They're sweeter to the taste than much honey. They're greater than great gold. The psalmist was celebrating that he can know God's will. And so the commands of God teach us the will of God. And most most, uh, helpfully, God's will is summarized in what we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that are etched in stone. We were talking about this in our catechism class this morning. The Ten Commandments were given in the Old Testament to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And yet they remain an abiding relevance because they teach us about God's will. They teach us about God's character. They teach us about how to live to the glory of God in gratitude. That's why when you turn to the New Testament, as someone like Philip Ross points out, every one of those Ten Commandments is endorsed and upheld by Jesus and his disciples. And it's upheld and endorsed by Jesus and his disciples in three different ways. By personal obedience, by citation, meaning that they quote from the commands of the law, or by illusion. And so you see Jesus and the disciples saying, the law is good. Paul himself can say the law is spiritual, that this is something good and pleasing and upright, because it's God's will. The problem isn't with God's instruction. The problem is is that we don't want to submit to it. By nature, we don't want God's will to be done. And so here, Jesus is actually calling attention to the the nerve of the Christian life. That the pulse, that the, the, the center of the Christian life is really summarized here in the language of not my will, but your will be done. John Calvin, the French reformer from 500 years ago, summarized the entire Christian life as submission. The whole of the Christian life, Calvin said, is submission to the spirit and the reigning of Christ in one's life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that one is willing to willingly bend the knee to the directing of the spirit And the rule of Christ in one's life. And so if you're not willing to bend the knee to Christ's rule. You're not a Christian. If you don't trust God's will. Then you're living in defiance of God. Who's revealed himself in Christ. That's that's what the scriptures are teaching us. That's what Jesus himself is teaching us. 
And so Jesus here highlights the importance uh, of God's will being done. The revelation of God's will in the law provides a standard by which we can know what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, particularly when we hear so many different opinions, when people become rather pragmatic in their ethics, when people become rather um, uh, subjective in terms of how one should live one's life. God's word actually gives us a guide for knowing and directing how we are to live. But it's not simply the law that is to direct the Christian. When, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes these words, Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing that by testing, you might discern the will of God. You might, you might be able to uncover the will of God. What is pleasing and acceptable and perfect. So Paul tells the church, don't be like the world. Don't just adopt the mindset of the world. You need to be transformed. You need to be transformed so that you're able to uncover God's will in your life so that you can arrive at what is good and pleasing and perfect, that you're able to know what is acceptable to God. You need to be transformed in your mind. How are you going to be transformed in your mind to be able to conclude what is the will of God? And Paul uses that same language elsewhere in the New Testament. Transformation comes not just by knowing what the law commands, Transformation comes not just by saying, I know what the Bible teaches. Transformation comes by the work of the Spirit when one sees the glory of God in Christ. Again, that's what Thomas Chalmers was highlighting, an expulsive power of a new affection. The transformation comes by the work of the Spirit when a person sees the glory of God and they become more attracted to God so that their life now becomes changed. They're more pulled towards God than they are being pulled towards the world. So when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed from one degree unto another. We are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How? With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus. As we see the glory of God, that does transform a person. And so when Paul tells the church in Rome, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might discern the will of God, he's saying, as you understand who God is, you will know the will of God and delight in it. But the will of God being something delightful comes from knowing who God himself is. And so it is, it is a work of the Spirit as we see who God is in the Lord Jesus. How is it that someone can delight in God's will rather than push back in suspicion, right? Submitting to anyone is not an attractive option. We do it with reluctance. 
But here, Jesus is teaching his followers, when you pray, pray, your will be done. What is going to cause a person to pray those words is when they realize that God's will is better. When they realize that God's will is good, that it's perfect, that it's desirable. And they only come to that conclusion as they uncover the glory of God in Christ. When Jesus came into this world, what did Jesus say? I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus could take the words of Psalm 40 and he could say, Behold, O Lord, it is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will. I have come to do it. Sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus understood what he was doing. He was coming to do as he confessed the will of God. You fast forward or you fast rewind back to Isaiah. What does it say about the Messiah that would come? It tells us that what God's will for the Messiah was to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Jesus knew that. So when Jesus is in the garden and he says, if, there, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. Why does Jesus say that? He knows what the will of God is. And yet he resigns himself to it. Because as it says in Isaiah 53, because the servant will see and will be satisfied. The will of God is something desirable to Jesus in his human nature. He's satisfied to submit to it because he sees, he knows by his knowledge, he knows the outcome of what is happening. By his knowledge shall the righteous one make many to be accounted as righteous. And so as Jesus comes, he's doing the will of God. That's his purpose in coming. But more than that, he's revealing the will of God as something desirable and good and beautiful because of what it produces. The will of God, as it comes to fruition in Christ, brings salvation to sinners. It brings blessing to those who are living in slavery. The will of God brings about a better end than our will if our will was to be done. And so Jesus is ultimately the means by which a person would dare to say these words. To be willing to say, your will be done. We can't be seriously asking for God's will to be done without also denying our own. To be willing to say, not mine, if it is at variance with yours. That's what prayer is. We said earlier that prayer is difficult because it is, it is dealing with things that weigh heavy upon us. It is, it is bringing matters before God, either in terms of thanksgiving or in terms of lament or in terms of confession, but it is dealing with things that are important to us, things that occupy our mind and our heart. But the real difficulty of prayer is, is that it puts us in a posture of submission. If you like doing stretches, if you like to get in shape, 
There may be certain stretches that you often do to make sure your body is bendable. But if we're not doing stretches as a regular practice, to try and do it the first time is difficult because our body isn't used to that, that position. It's, a, it's an awkward posture, it hurts. Prayer is like stretching in a position that we're not used to, it hurts. Because it's saying that we're submitting to God's will. That's what James Packer highlights. He says, prayer is not making God do my will, which is practicing magic, but to bring my will into submission to his, which is what it means to practice true religion. So here, Jesus teaches a very fundamental aspect of prayer. Not my will, but God's will be done. Sadly, uh, Jesus uh, is teaching this uh, very thing to to his disciples. We have to realize that. Uh, Here is Jesus teaching his followers uh, to pray this very thing because even those who follow Christ, we we still can revert to a mindset of my will be done. Uh, That that old desire of asserting ourselves quickly uh, comes back. But more than that, we may even fail to recognize when we're being governed by our own, wish, uh, our own wills, our own wishes, and our own comforts rather than the will of God. You may be sitting here this evening as someone who can't pray those words, your will be done. Uh, and if you're not there yet, then recognize it is a battle of the will, whose will will be done. But recognize more than that, It's not simply about whose will should reign. Underneath that issue is the issue of your view of God. There is a logic to the Lord's Prayer. What Jesus is teaching his disciples to say here flows out logically from what he has just taught them to say. They are to pray, your will be done because they have come to know something of the care of God as Heavenly Father. They have come to know something about God and his care and authority through the Lord Jesus Christ. They have come to confess that Christ's kingdom should come because that is the source of our hope, our blessing, our security. That Christ's kingdom is something good. And it's when we understand something about God's care and we understand something of the purposes of God's kingdom in Christ as something desirable, that we would then gladly submit to the rule of Christ in our life. So Jesus is teaching us here the importance of understanding uh, who God is, even as we submit to his will. So there is whose will. Jesus teaches us to pray that God's will would be done. But how is God's will to be done? He says, on earth as it is in heaven. We might think uh, that Jesus is simply referring to the stars in the heavens, but much more likely Jesus is talking about uh, the angels and the souls of the righteous made perfect, the residents in heaven. How do those in heaven obey the, the will of God? And we could summarize it in just a few thoughts. We can summarize it as being complete. The angels are marked by their obedience. In Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, 
uh, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. They are depicted as readily prepared to do the bidding of the Lord. Not only is their obedience complete, but it is also cheerful. You think of the angel who comes announcing good news to the shepherds. A savior is born in Bethlehem. A king, Christ the Lord. But as that announcement comes, there's a heavenly host praising God. They don't simply do the will of God with obligation or out of duty, but it's their delight. The Apostle Peter tells us that the prophets who were revealing to us the things of God, it tells us that the angels longed to inquire about the things of God's will. They delighted in it. The unfolding of God's purposes was a source of delight to them. They were cheerful in complying and seeing the will of God realized. Not only was their uh, obedience complete and cheerful, but it's also continuous. The residents in heaven are described as serving the Lord day and night. And so it is something constant. Jesus is teaching us to pray the will of God to be done because we can be partial in our submission, half-hearted in our obedience, and intermittent in our yield to God. Now, if we're struggling with cynical mindsets, we might hear all of this and then think, what's the point of talking about God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because it'll never be realized until Christ returns. Why pray these words if I can't accomplish it perfectly? There was someone who lived several hundred years ago. His name was Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan. But Thomas Watson said something that made me think that this helps with that objection. Uh, Why should we pray these words if it won't be realized in perfection in this life? If we still struggle with sin, if we're intermittent in our yielding to God, if we're, we're not always cheerful in doing the will of God, why pray these words? And Thomas Watson, uh, in his treatment of the Lord's Prayer, uh, says this. He compares submission to the will of God uh, to playing a musical instrument. And he says, we must obey his will in every command, strike upon every string, or we can make no good melody uh, in religion. In other words, we are to strive in every area of our life to obey God's word so that the melody of God's grace resounds throughout all because we want the sound of God's glory to emerge and it's satisfying to the hear to to the ear that while God's command may not be perfectly realized in our lifetime until Christ returns it should still be our aim that it is realized because that's why we play music it's satisfying It's encouraging, it's uplifting, it's enriching. And for the person who has come to see God's will as a good thing, they will desire it more and more, even when they wrestle or struggle with it being realized in their life. While we can stretch this analogy even further, we can say that the melody can be pleasing to hear even when it is not perfectly played. If you play the piano or if you play the guitar, you enjoy making the music. But even if you don't play it perfectly, it's still nice to listen to. 
It's nice for yourself, but it's also nice for others. It's pleasing to the ears. And I think we can take Watson's words here about wanting to be consistent in every area of our life as a guide for why the Christian should pray these words. Because we want the melody of God's grace to be heard. We want it to be settled in our life. We want others to hear that it's something delightful too. There was a recent catechism uh, that was written uh, dealing with the uh, arena, the whole area of uh, human sexuality. And in that catechism, Christopher Gordon is wrestling with uh, very sensitive and controversial topics of our own day. Uh, One contemporary area where people push back at the will of God is in the area of what they do with their bodies sexually. And why it is that we should submit to God's will with what we do with our bodies. And many things could be mentioned. But two things in that catechism that stand out. Uh, as to why we should honor the Lord and submit to the Lord's will with how we use our bodies. Uh, One, because our sinful desires do not define our identity. When we say your will be done, we're saying there's something greater than the simple pleasure of our own bodies. But then secondly, because by seeking to honor God in every area of our life, the Spirit strengthens our Christian walk And we give glory to God, and we can witness to others of a pleasing melody. Your will be done is testifying about who this God is. Not just that he's sovereign, not just that he's in control, but that his ways are perfect, that his ways are right, that his ways are satisfying. That's what the psalmist said there in Psalm 119. He, he said that they were his choice, but he also said they're satisfying. That's the language of one who has been transformed. They're no longer simply living for the mindset, my will to be done, to the very end, my way. But rather they are those who have discovered something about God, having been transformed by God's grace in Jesus Christ, they now willingly say, not my will, but your will be done. Teach me and change me so that I would want your will to be realized in my life. That's the wrestling of prayer, bringing our issues before the Lord and ultimately yielding them to the revealed will of God. The sum of the Christian life is one of submission to God. It is a response that comes from knowing God's care in and through Jesus, who submitted himself to the will of God in order to save sinners. What governs your life? I pray that each of us can say these words of the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that with uh, this prayer, that we would take stock as to what it is that we most trust in. Lord, we pray that uh, we would recognize not only the unreliability of our own will, but that we would come to discover your ways are best, and that by your Spirit we would see the glory of God and desire your ways over all.
So teach us and mold us and give us uh, a heart that yields to Christ. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.